This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Can a time of crisis become a time of hope? Can we cultivate joy, not just after, but even in the midst of scandal? And can friendship teach us how to be authentically Christian, authentically human, beginning perhaps from a place you may not expect, a seminary? Joining us today to talk about a vision of education and formation in a seminary that led to a new collaborative conference is Dr. Eric Mabry, Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology and Department Chair at Christ the King Seminary in the Diocese of Buffalo. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, Lenny. Thanks so much for having me. So you and your colleagues, Father John Mack and Dr. Brian Bejek, just finished hosting a conference you founded last year, which is devoted to collaborative philosophy, theology, and ministry. I was wondering if you could start out by just telling us a little bit about your inspiration for the founding of this conference and what you hope it'll do for the academy and for the church. Sure, absolutely. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, I mean, honestly, I have to say it goes back to um, an old friendship that Father Mack and I forged uh, when we were taking graduate classes together at the University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. So we were in some courses together, and Father Mack reached out to me at, um, and invited my family to sort of come down and to see the seminary and, and things like that. And so we, we built this friendship over the course um, of the year back in, say, 2014 or so. But around that same time, Father Mack was tasked with revamping the philosophy program, the pre-theology program at the seminary down in Buffalo. And so he was asked to find some, you know, faculty support for doing that renovation. And so he reached out to me and he said, hey, is this something that you would, you know, be interested in? And I have to confess, even, you know, even though I was in Catholic grad programs and Catholic doctoral programs, seminary teaching had never really never really been on my horizon yeah. at all. Yeah, but a job um, had, fact, I bet. A job yeah, was yeah, on right. the horizon, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, yeah. right. That's right. And, and quite frankly, I'd even had some, you know, mentors in graduate school, hmm. you know, dissuade me heavily from that. They're like, Is that no, right? You don't want to, yeah, you don't want to get involved in that. You get sucked down into a teaching hole and you're never going to get out. You know what? We'll co-author a book that'll be called Climbing Out of the Teaching Hole, How We Found Light at the End of the Tunnel or something like yeah. that. Oh, all right. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We got to do that. All we got to right. do that. And, you know, and quite frankly, I mean, there'd been kind of a reputation even even in Catholic circles that, you know, seminaries are kind of, you know, second-rate grad schools with second-rate people and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I had, you know, mixed feelings about it. But, you know, I prayed about it and I talked to Father Mac and, and it was really Father Mac's vision for the integration of philosophy and theology within the seminary context. It was really quite the inspiration to me. And I said, well, so I have certain philosophical and theological strength, um, but I have a friend um, who has complementary philosophical and theological strengths. 
And I said, so while I'm confident that I could teach, you know, most things that you needed, I think the best, you know, the best thing would be, would you be open to, you know, talking to my friend Brian Bajic uh, about coming on as well? And so uh, it, it was really, it was this team, you know, emerged um, out of friendships that had and shared a vision for how we could do a better job of integrating philosophy and theology in the holistic ministerial framework of the seminary. So we started putting together this program. And about uh, about two years into that, one time at lunch, Father Mac uh, sat down. He's like, hey, have you, uh, what do you think about doing a conference here? Sometime? Man, this is a guy you got to be careful sitting with, it sounds <laughs> yeah. like, right? He's, That's right. He's getting you to move to a seminary, and all of a sudden, I feel like this is going to you planning a conference. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, um, man, he comes up with the ideas, and then he finds the people who will implement <laughs> Synergy, um, that fancy word people synergy, use yeah. to get other yeah, people yeah. to do their work. That's right, right that's right. <laughs> so he just, I mean, he's amazing. I mean, he just has, yeah, yeah. again, I just, his vision is so, it's not only effusive and big, it's yeah. broad. Yeah, um, and because, generous, generous. Yeah, oh, yeah, and generous. In, yeah. Absolutely. So there's just, there's like this, this deep, I mean, it's almost like an ontological hospitality, right? That kind of emanates from earth. And, um, and so it, it, but it's also infectious, like as you yourself have, you know, experienced interacting with him. So Brian and I, you know, we've now been teaching for two years or so. And uh, we've been, Brian and I have both been fortunate where we've been able to keep up a pretty good Concert, uh, concert. Yeah, there's sometimes they're like concerts, conference, <laughs> <laughs> conference circuit ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've been to CTSA, we've been to CTS. I go to ACPA sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're involved in a lot of like Lonergan networks and those types of things. And when we initially started to share with our friends and colleagues that we were going to be teaching in seminaries, um, we got a lot of like startled, scare, stuff, yeah. you know. You know, blank stares, you know, are you nuts? Are you crazy? You know, like, what are you doing? Um, But then what was really striking is, you know, once you got sort of past that initial, well, that's interesting. uh, (laughs) Then we would tell them what we were planning on doing in our courses with the seminarians. And people were like, you've got to be out of your mind. You can't, you can't do that. You can't do that in epistemology with seminarians. You can't do that in metaphysics with seminarians. You can't, you can't. And what we realized is we were, and, but the thing was is, is we did it more and more. We're like, well, no, you can. <laughs> yeah. and, and we have. Very, yeah. And we have. That's yeah, right. And right. And it's very successful. And mm. so in a certain way, it was kind of our own startling realization that, huh, we... We are just by simply trying to implement what we think the church has asked to be done in the seminary, right? Like we didn't really think about like we were doing anything novel. I mean, we we read documents like Pastoris Davovobis, yeah. and we'd read the program for priestly formation, yeah. and it says do um, this, it, so we're going to try and do this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, exactly. I'm like, right. well, this seems pretty straightforward, and <laughs> um, you know, and we're like, all right, well, we just got to put this put this to work, and uh, so we didn't really initially think of us as doing something any any like brown graking or watershed or something new, but we, here we are. We're surprising all these people, and these are our friends and colleagues, and sometimes senior colleagues whom we respect just very, very much, and they're really surprised. But what we noticed is. As we shared these joys, right, with our friends and colleagues, they were getting excited. 
Hmm. So the sort of initial kind of disbelief became surprise. And then that surprise became, wow, you guys are, you guys are accomplishing something that we're not aware is really taking place in very many places. Right. And, let and alone so, seminaries, but anywhere Right, let alone seminaries. Right, yeah. Let alone seminaries. And so we're like, huh, we are, we're changing a paradigm, or at least a perceived paradigm. You know, sure. like, it's not my intention at all to, like, you know, throw any place under the bus, and I hope to God that this is happening in, in other places. And, and I have to say, so just to give one concrete example so that I clear myself of any charges of, <laughs> of bashing anybody, <laughs> Brian and I have two really wonderful colleagues, uh, Jeremy Blackwood and Paul Monson, Mm -hmm. who are at Sacred Heart Seminary in Milwaukee. And they have a very similar vision to what we have. And in fact, at our first conference last year, Paul gave this incredible paper where he suggested that uh, Newman's idea of a university might in fact just turn out to be the seminary. Whoa. And and it was it was incredible. It was yeah. such a stellar oh, paper. And of course, that. yeah, a little bit tongue in cheek too because he he actually started the paper with Newman's own like really really intense avowal that there's this massive difference between university and, <laughs> <laughs> and seminary life. So he you know, stacked like, the odds against it, himself and then he slayed the odds in his own yeah, paper. Yeah, exactly, I love it. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, that, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I know that seems kind of like a long wind-up, but that really was the impetus for the conference, was it was, oh, wow, we're already interacting with our friends and colleagues, and we're sharing mm-hmm. these things. Why not bring them here? Bring others right? in. Why not bring other people in so that we can effect a process of mutual, not just exchange, but of mutual enrichment, Yeah. right? L- Lonergan talks a lot about this idea of uh, mutual self-mediation, right? Uh-huh. And, and it's easy to, th- I mean, maybe not easy, but it's, it's tempting to, to think of that usually just on an individual by individual basis, right? So the self-mediation that's proper to friends or the self-mediation that's proper to spouses and that sort of thing. But what we recognize is that, well, why why couldn't we attempt to affect something like this again with interpersonal friendships being the basis mm. why wouldn't we try to like elevate that nexus of friendships into a nexus of institutional collaborations yeah. and friendships yeah. right yeah. um i mean if, if the church is anything i i pray to god, <laughs> pray to god and in my reading of the second vatican council is anything close to correct <laughs> um the mystical body is a nexus of friends that's founded in the friendship of the holy spirit mm. right that that is what church is mm. and so if that's true then those institutions who have as their special mission, right, whether you're talking about, you know, Ecclesia Ex Corde, or you're talking about Veritatis Gaudium, or, or any of the, the papal teachings about the role of ecclesiastical faculties or universities, or like in Pastor Adava Vobis, the papal teaching about seminaries, you have these institutions that are supposed to serve that basic missional identity of the church as this nexus of sort of pneumatological friendships, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if that's if that's true, then well, what should be the basis of those institutions? Well, n- not not publication records, like it, it should <laughs> which be, is inherently competitive, right? Exactly, yeah, right, right, right. That's right. And so you know, to bring in a little Gerard, uh, you are flirting with mimetic rivalry mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. It's mimetic rivalry because you're like, so-and-so next door to you yeah. just got another book published. 
And you, want the, you want the book publication. And, and you want the, the book published. Right, that's the poison that yeah. undoes the possibility yeah. of friendship. Exactly, yeah. because you're like, well, my tenure review's up next mm-hmm. year, and I got I to gotta nail that, right? Because yep. I got to take care of my family, because I'm trying to live the church's you know, teaching about the family, but if I, if I don't make this tenure, I'm not going to have the salary to be able to support, right? And, and so all of a sudden, all that these... guy next door is attacking the well-being of my family, right? Like, there's, <laughs> yes, there's right. the competition, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so we we sort of embraced this competitive structure, and we saw an opportunity to take a academic structure that's very familiar with these mimetic lines and these mimetic contours, uh, namely the conference. Mm-hmm. We say, hey, we can use this academic structure that's all too familiar, but we can use it to promote the sort of bedrock, the sort of fundamental nexus of relationships that is supposed to be foundational to our vocations as right. theologians, as Christian philosophers, and then as ministers, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of in a nutshell, but maybe in a slightly roundabout way. <laughs> a coconut shell. What was, Let's say that, yeah. Yeah. Kind of what was driving the ideas before yeah. uh, that sort of brought us to the point of having such a thing as the International Conference for Collaborative Philosophy, Theology, and Ministry. Awesome. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We are talking with Dr. Eric Mabry, Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology and Department Chair at Christ the King Seminary in the Diocese of Buffalo. You talked a lot there really well about the importance of collegiality that's really more than that even. It's sort of grounded, rooted, inspired by friendship. In the conference, but also, let's just say in the seminary in, the, in general, how do you hope for that to become a really important fundamental mold in which our future priests themselves are formed? Right. Yeah, thank you. I mean, first and foremost, it sort of, I, I think, is rooted, I think there's a temptation, I mean, obviously with the abuse crisis in full force right now, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of conversations about clericalism, and that gets thrown around, and it has a lot of different meanings to a lot of different people. Um, sometimes it's marginalized in discussions, sometimes it's made sort of front and center, sometimes it's scapegoated. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, usages, but but I, I really do think that, um, you know, one of the features about clerical is that it depersonalizes and dehumanizes both priests and laity, hmm. right? So it, it sort of embraces the absolute worst functionism and sort of mechanism. Um, and it reduces the relationship between clergy and laity and the relationships that should obtain in ministry. It makes them cease to be personal yeah. and so fundamentally undermines the effectiveness of this ministerial relationship that is supposed to be this sort of self-diffusive overflowing of the goodness of God and the manifestation of his love, right? Mm -hmm. Now, so with that, I think what happens is there's kind of a myth, the myth of, uh, uh, and I think you see this a little bit more in understandings of episcopacy, but I think it comes out in the priesthood as well. Mm -hmm. You see this myth of the lone priest, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, even in just, incredible works of literature, and I, I don't want to <laughs> snub Bernano, but even in, in Bernano's book, you know, The Diary of the Country Priest, he is alone, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, and so much of his sort of, you could even say sort of spiritual temptation or spiritual struggle has to do with this, this, this um, specter of loneliness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think there has been a severe temptation to try to 
spiritualize that loneliness and to make it into a spiritual good. A kind of heroism, but, right? Like a spiritual yeah, heroism yeah. out of the loneliness, it's, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But and and you alluded to that a little bit in your talk about Rilke and Guardini and sort of the the competing notions of loneliness, you know, in your keynote at the conference. Um, but what I what I've been struck by is, look, the Genesis account presents a very different narrative about what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a mistake to limit the Genesis account uh, when it says it's not good for man to be alone. Um, I don't think that is to be taken exclusively within the context of a marital relationship, mm-hmm. right? And, and I mean, here I think is where it's one of the most profoundest appropriations by the church's social teaching of ancient and medieval wisdom, right? I mean, Aristotle in Politics Book One says that man is by nature social, right? right. And that's just a, that's a fundamentally different political point of departure than Enlightenment narratives about being human, yeah. right? Whether you're talking about Rousseau, or you're talking about Hobbes, or you're talking about Locke, like all those guys accept the myth, and it is just that, they accept the myth of to be human means to be independent. Right. First of all, the relational all, may come later, yeah. but the fundamental anthropological category comes down to something like autonomy. Exactly. Right. And, 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 and that means then that any relationship, whether contract-based or not, or not, is in in some way requires a sacrifice. Right. And in that sense, the social society, the social network, the polis, or any sort of social uh, contract is inherently violent because mm. it's inherently self-harming, right? right? You have to take something away from yourself in order to be part of the society. You have to give something up. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how Aristotle thinks about it, and it's not how Thomas thinks about it either. So when Thomas appropriates Aristotle, he's like, well, this makes eminent sense. Of course, if you're going to achieve human self-sufficiency, you can only do that as a member of a society, Hmm. right? And so then when you integrate the perfection that comes with charity and the, the loving governance of charity over the cardinal virtues... Well, then you see how friendship with God then comes and mediates the friendships that are supposed to be basic to human society. I, I've always loved Gregory Nyssa in his, in his commentary on the Beatitudes, defines peace, right? So he's mm-hmm. commenting on blessed are the peacemaker. And uh, I mean, we always hear peace isn't the absence of war, but sometimes you do hear peace is the absence of war, right? But <laughs> let's just at least don't, go for that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. at least go for that. Yeah. But, but people don't always have something to... Rep- I think people at some level grasp, well, that's only a negative definition. That's not a positive definition. Yeah. But we don't really have anything to fill it in with. Okay, well, wh- well what is peace? Right. And I-, I, think, I think Gregory nails it. Gregory says peace is love of neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think if we bring all that, if, if all that Catholic social teaching about being social by nature, about our inherently social character being perfected in the friendship that we have with God that will then redound and ground our friendships with each other, all of that has to be applied to the priesthood, right? If the priest is a human being and human formation is an integral facet of being human and being a priest, well then you don't, there's not a question about embracing loneliness or, or making it into some kind of heroic struggle. No, the priest is called to friendship just as much as any other human being is. Mm. 
Right. I mean, I love the line from JP2 in Pastoris Dabovobis. I mean, he's citing actually his own writing in Redemptor Hominis, but he says... <laughs> that's when you know you've you know, made it, by the way, folks. <laughs> that's right. I know. He's like, as I've said you elsewhere. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he says, man cannot live without love. Mm-hmm. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is meaningless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it, right? And I think that's what has to ground the way uh, formation functions, yeah, right? The, the friendship has to be basic because, um, you know, if, if we're ever even going to, and, and I think if that's true, if that can happen in the context of formation yeah. and friendship becomes basic to that, yeah. then we're going to be well on our road to being able to have a theology of lay cleric relationships, right? Because right. that goes beyond the seminary. Like the priest is not just friends with other priests. It's not a priest club, right? <laughs> the, the the priest has to learn how to have friendships with his flock. Yeah. Right? Because if God himself, who is the ruler of the universe and who sent his son to die for our sins and who's Lord of all creation, if he can look at his apostles and he can say, I have called you not servants, but friends, then every single priest in every single parish, has to be capable of cultivating friendships with their flock. It's absolutely essential to being a good pastor and being a good shepherd. Beautiful. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Dr. Eric Mabry, Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology and Department Chair at Christ the King Seminary in the Diocese of Buffalo. You know, Eric, as I'm listening to you, and you alluded to this already, the challenging times we're in for especially, well, not just especially, but it it reaches into seminaries that the abuse, the ongoing abuse crisis and the loss, the crisis of, of trust and of faith in priests and in the episcopacy, in some ways like that goes right into a seminary door. And I imagine that you feel much of those effects even in a diocese where there's been not a small amount of uh, difficulty and challenges in recent months. But as you're talking about this, and maybe some of our listeners are feeling this too, this sounds like a hopeful call, a call of joy that's coming from a seminary setting. How Does that resonate with you? I mean, is this what does it feel like to be in the inside of the seminary, to be you know, working with these guys who are answering a call to priesthood and to try to cultivate a place that actually has something joyful to proclaim? Uh, well, if I'm being honest, sometimes it depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, we share similar weather patterns, so I understand. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, the first thing that, that I have to say, too, is it's been a hard walk. Yeah. Right? Um and it's been a hard run. It was a hard. It was a hard semester uh, with the Pennsylvania report, and then, as you mentioned, you know some of our own struggles to be transparent and to be open, and quite frankly, to be contrite, mm-hmm. right? To imitate Christ's own example, who is totally without sin. And I, I can't say that for myself, and I can't say that for for anybody. Nobody, you know, when Jesus asks, "He's who who is without sin, cast the first stone." Nobody can stand up. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's he's the only one that can stand up and say, "I'm free of sin." And yet, his example to us and to the church is, "I have no sin, but I offer contrition for the sins of the whole world." Mm-hmm. Right. And and I, and I think if we're going to succeed at all. I, th- I think we have to adopt that model. We have to adopt that model of of contrition for sins that sometimes 
some people don't feel responsible for, right? I mean, I hear, hear various people saying sometimes, well, I didn't do that. And I'm like, well, that's, that's true. However, if you're going to mediate the love of God, God's example is he didn't do that, but he's willing to take the fall, mm-hmm. right? He's willing to bear the consequences for sins that he did not commit mm-hmm. and didn't will, mm-hmm. right? And, but but with, with that model in mind, and, and, and this is maybe <laughs> a little bit unpopular in some theological circles now, but I don't think that even in the crucifixion, Jesus loses the joy that he has with the Father, hmm. right? The joy that he has, and I don't just mean in his divinity. Like, mm-hmm. I, in his humanity, Christ nurtures a joy that never fails him, right? And, and, and to me, if we adopt this Christological model and we do real penance for the real harm that has been done, then what will be available to us is a deeper, not just appreciation, but a deeper appropriation of the joy, which is Christ. And that's what I see as sort of being at, at the, being basic to yeah. being able to move forward, is the joy that you have is not a, not a trust in yourself, mm-hmm. not a trust in your own strength, not in the trust in our ability to like get through this somehow. I, no, it's, not, it's, it's really none of those things. It's a trust that it comes out of faith, and consequently, it's a trust that opens on to hope. Mm-hmm. And as you know, St. Thomas says, hope has to do with a good that is hard to ob- obtain, right? And so we are definitely in the situation of we have an arduous good that needs to be obtained, right? Yeah. And that arduous good is to form holy men who are capable of being good shepherds in the image of the chief shepherd who will go and who will serve the flock and not serve themselves, mm. right? That's, that's an arduous good. I yeah. just don't think there's anything question about that. But, but the hope that's possible is the hope that comes from the law of the cross, and that is that God, no matter what we do, always brings good out of evil. That's what we have to place our trust in. And that's, you know, what... What on some days, especially the <laughs> the bad ones, you have to you know, fall back with all your weight on that trust. Exactly, yeah. that's right. Yeah. That, but that's a that's a that's a pneumatological thrust, right? Yeah. That's a, the drive of the spirit that says, right. "I'm going to drive you into the wilderness, but I'm going to drive you into the wilderness so that you, in that state, can experience the living God, can experience the love of that living God, and that then you can communicate that love." Uh, with others, I, that that has to be the ultimate source of joy, and it has to be the the source of hope. So it's not. I mean, if if this if this period does anything, I hope it just wakes us up, right? It, it, we're not we're not saying platitudes. We're not trying to talk about an ideology. We're trying to destroy all ideologies. Trying to cast down all the idols. Um, that have sort of crept up and ossified uh, in our educational practices. Um, and this, this gives us an opportunity because we have failed, and we have to accept that we have failed if we're going to succeed eventually, because we owe so very much to the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We owe everything to them. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make them a priority, and we have to serve them. But that's the source for the joy. We serve them in the love which Christ has, himself has poured out on us. Beautiful. Well, Eric, 
Thank you so much, not only for this refreshing and rejuvenating conversation, but for all the leadership and vision that you're a part of at Christ the King Seminary. And thanks also to Father John and Brian for sharing that vision with so many, especially in this new way through the conference that you've initiated. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a a joy to talk with you. And thanks to all of you for listening today on Church Life Today. 